nobody's business, huh? That's Walter Parks. He's a white singer-songwriter. Singing an old blues tune at the Focal Point, a uh, folk club in St. Louis. Yeah, we were both in the room with him, watching him perform that amazing rendition of that song, uh, which, you know, I was just kind of blown away by his voice. And as a white musician doing hollers and blues music, it's just really great that we got to talk to him for the first episode of our show. We'll be talking a little bit about that song and other songs and songs that have a provenance from African-American songwriters that have been reinterpreted and popularized by non-African-Americans. It was a great interview, and the fact that we got to do it on the stage at the focal point was just uh, icing on the cake. Yeah, all right, so let's go to it. Uh, Here's Walter Parks on Rambling Through the Bramble. Rambling Through the Brambles. I'm Clark Taylor. And I'm Hobart Taylor. We're finding our way through the thicket of black-white racial entanglement. Season 1, Black Music in White Hands. Alright, uh, this is uh, Rambling Through the Brambles. I'm Hobart Taylor. And I'm Clark Taylor. And this is a show about the intersectionality of race, culture, and a little bit about St. Louis as well. Mm-hmm. And we're here with Walter Parks. Hi, Walter. Hey, Hobart. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Well, why don't we go back to the beginning. Um, uh, Walter, where did you grow up, and how did you become a musician? I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and um, so that was the uh, epicenter of what would become Southern Rock, you know, at that point. And the bands that represented that were Leonard Skinner, they they came after bands like the Allman Brothers, which, you know, I I would never call the Allman Brothers Southern Rock. They were more like a band that jams and a band that improvises with a Southern allegiance sonically. But I, in terms of being anthemically Southern or the ambassadors of the South. I think of Leonard Skinner being that, but not the Allman Brothers. They were just really great musicians. I mean, heck, the drummer was a symphony player. Right. You know, and J-Mo, uh, the drummer Butch Trucks was a symphony player. J-Mo was a jazz player. When I was a kid growing up in Jacksonville, Florida, it was understood that we had a very strong racial perspective. It's not that anybody sat me down and said, you're a white man and, you know, here's here's where you are in the pecking order of things. It was just it was just an understanding. It was the way people acted. Now, I'm talking about white people who are around me. But along comes the Allman Brothers when I was a young boy. And they had one band member in the Allman Brothers who was a black man, J-Mo. And I thought, Wow. And I thought, holy, you know, black people and white people are, I I was told they can't get along, they can't coexist, you know? And and yet they're coexisting harmonically and they're getting along and they're working together. Ah, J-Mo. 
John Lee Johnson, a drummer for Allman Brothers Band. And uh, I remember when I was in college, I saw the band up at uh, Brown in the 70s. And uh, that was really impressive to me because uh, uh, here were a bunch of uh, white hippies, southern white hippies, uh, really playing black music. And, and it made me feel good, it made me feel like uh, my culture was being accepted. I loved hearing you guys back and forth on this. And for me, the Allman Brothers were an eight-track tape that I somehow ended up with. But I played endlessly uh, what live at Fillmore East, that kind of quintessential album of theirs. And I heard it over and over and over again with those kachunks in the middle of songs. Um, and I didn't know that there was a black man in the band. I didn't understand it from that perspective. So it's really neat to hear about this. And, you know, J-Mo apparently at 79, still living in, he lives in Connecticut, Obviously, Walter was influenced by the Allman Brothers, and let's let's get back into his understanding of those influences. In, in one sense, I'm not proud that it took a band like the Allman Brothers to show me something that obvious. But I'm also happy that at least I was shown that, you know? And if that's what it took to open my eyes as a sheltered young white kid in Jacksonville, Florida, then so be it. And it's a good thing. You were talking about the Allman Brothers, and uh, we were talking uh, before the recording began about uh, cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation. Did you... um, perceive a difference between uh, what Led Zeppelin was doing with the blues and what the Allman Brothers were doing with the blues? Well, at the time, I didn't. Because all I knew is that when I heard Led Zeppelin play um, something that was derived from, I'm just making this up, maybe Robert Johnson or something, I didn't know Robert Johnson. I I got the blues from Led Zeppelin. Now, see... I got my blues from Led Zeppelin. I mean, I, in one sense, here we are in a in an establishment that that furthers the tradition of folk music and and, and American historic music, and I feel a little bit sort of ashamed of that in the sense that my blues came to me through Cream and came to me through Led Zeppelin. So I didn't know. I didn't know the sources of that. And it, and yes, later on, I um, I would come to see that as I would look at it more from a business standpoint, or see the business aspects of it, and that some of these songs were, you know, I I don't know if they were they would it, it looked like they were just clear lifts from the originals, and and there was no in certain cases, no credits given to the original uh, performers. Um, there's a tricky, tricky aspect to that, and I, I will share with you my opinion about it as we go on through this interview. But I think your question was, is did I, did I recognize the appropriational aspect? Yeah, well, comparing, I, I was, you're talking about uh, also being influenced by, by the Allman Brothers, and in the case of the Allman Brothers, oh, the Allman they're a lot closer because they engage, for instance, with, with uh, black people. They have a black person in the band. They, they live in a culture where there's black-white interaction, right. and, and uh, the music is, uh, is uh, uh, literally in the water around there. I will acquiesce to this. When you... 
when you would see the Allman Brothers play or you listen to some of those early Allman Brothers recordings from 69 through 71 or so, mm-hmm. you know, so there was a real, a real a, a attempt in a, to, to credit the source when you're dealing with the Allman Brothers and not so much from Led Zeppelin. And, I, you know, that was probably maybe a, a not so... In, that, to me, there's there's some integrity issues there, but on the other hand, um, I'm really, really darn glad that I represented that music to me at all because I would have never heard it. So let me get in on the Led Zeppelin thing. Uh, you know, I, exactly like Walter, and I think he mentions it at some point, he he got turned on to the blues through Led Zeppelin. I got turned on to Led Zeppelin. It was literally the first album I had when I told my mom, go get me some rock and roll to listen to. I was 11. She went to some album, you know, record store in town, and he said, I know what your kid's going to like. And he sold her Led Zeppelin one. And I used to press my ears up against this one little eight inch speaker on my grandmother's Victrola, whatever, and listen to that record over and over and over again. And like Walter, I appreciated that later in life, I would understand where these songs come from. Well, you know, I had a whole different take on Led Zeppelin because I'd heard the blues, uh, and then I heard Led Zeppelin. And uh, I, I was just, uh, annoyed at uh, uh, these, uh, you know, guys wearing really tight leather pants and and and, and throwing the microphones around like they were penises, and uh, I, I just uh, uh, felt that wasn't the blues. The blues were far far subtler and uh, 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 far more, you know, engaged with uh, uh, real human feelings rather than rather than uh, pure showmanship. So uh, I, I I hated. It. I, I just uh, it, I just thought it was a, yeah. It's uh, fascinating because because I was eleven and I had no idea what these guys were saying. And I wasn't for a really long time. Yeah, I was sixteen, so I already had you know moved slightly more uh, uh, to a, a, a different attitude and approach toward music. So uh, yeah. that's part of it. For sure. Well, they turned me on to rock and roll 100%. And eventually, of course, I heard all the blues greats sing all their stuff as I lived my life out and came to appreciate. uh, uh, And I think to get back to the interview, I think this is where we start getting into your questions with Walter about cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation and also cultural reclamation. Absolutely, and uh, I just want to say one thing in fairness to Led Zeppelin. The Levy song, that was real. That was real. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's right. get back to it. And here's the other side to it. We can, can I give my opinion on yeah, this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we can disparage these bands like the Allman Brothers or British bands and for, you know, whether or not they stole this music or whatever it, it's that's up to the courts and all that stuff it's it's it doesn't do any good for me to express my opinion on that but i will say this i'm dealing with issues of that sort myself right now because i'm doing a lot of library of congress research from some old tapes uh, that were made in the early 40s 
And I have come to the conclusion from conversations and from thinking about it deeply that if I take a song that was not copyrighted and was essentially public domain, and I take that song and I do my own version of it, What's the most important thing is that I remember where I got that song. And I'll tell you why I believe this. So, in my opinion, the best thing you can do, if that record that you make should succeed, and let's say it gets placed in a movie, then you go, then you find the guys, whoever the family members are, share some of the monies with that. Or go to that community where that music came from and help build a community center that that furthers the appreciation of the music. If, if, you, if those guys were to try to trace down the generations, the children of all the people who wrote the blues songs, right now, at this point in time, how many are there? There's, there's hundreds of people. Because the, the original guys, didn't, they don't, they're no longer living. They never filed any copyrights on a lot of this stuff. So... You're going to be more effective if you take the successes that you have, if you do, which is unlikely. I'm talking about the concept of helping people out where this music came from. Go back to the community. Give, give, give educational benefits. Give, give scholarships to young children in that community. But don't try to spread that money out because everybody's going to, these people are going to make $100 a person. And it's not, you know, it's not going to be real help. Well, and I guess, you know, you could always say that if you uh, uh, go to B.B. King, then and, and, and B.B. King, you go to Muddy Waters and, and yeah. the generation. So it's not just uh, um, appropriation in terms of uh, cultural appropriation, but, 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 but going back through individuals and, and, and when, uh, how many melodies are there really in the world. And, yeah, and, well, mm. I, I want to be clear here. I, I'm... First of all, this is just my opinion. And if you're dealing with somebody who is who is as present and tangible in in the in the in the story of history, like Muddy Waters or BB King, there's no question you you have to you have to credit that person, especially if his or her work was registered properly with the trademark office or has been. You have to. That's the law. And it's also the right thing to do. But, fellas, what I'm talking about is really trying to give help to the areas where this music came from. My, my preference would be to try really hard to get some success and get that record out and then go back to some of these areas and say, I want to build a cultural center or I want to help you all to do it. and give some, or, or maybe help a local kid through college or something. I mean, real, real Concentrate the wealth. Concentrate the riches. The the riches. I mean, believe me, this is, you know, unless you're Led Zeppelin or or Cream, there's no riches, uh, you know, in a sentence is is laughable. But, but, you know, for me, um, I I, want to be very clear here. I I, I am going to always give credit to where my inspirations come from in this historical research mm-hmm. but you know it's it is a an abyss and it, it is a non-functional administrative abyss 
to try to <laughs> to try to find the inheritors of the people who wrote these songs who were never ever pulled a copyright or a trademark on this stuff. It's better to just try to do good yourself. This is a really difficult issue in historic music, is to find where it actually sourced from. And a lot of times you think you, I'm, 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 uh, I'm working with a song called uh, Ain't Nobody's Business right now, or at least that's how, it's not even, it's not even, it's actually not even credited or described that way in the Library of Congress tape. It's, it's, it's introduced as one of the old-fashioned songs, follow, pre, uh, preceded by a holler, something called a coming home holler or something like that. Now, this song that this young boy goes into is called It Ain't Nobody's Business, and they ascribe this as, as one of the old-fashioned songs. But in fact, Ain't Nobody's Business, as far as I know and as far as my research has shown, came from the Mississippi Delta area. That was an old blues song. Mm-hmm. Bessie Smith sang it, and probably folks before her sang it. But here it is in the Okefenokee Swamp in southeast Georgia being sung by a 17-year-old white guy. Yeah, I just want to take a quick moment to mention that I did look into his work with the Library of Congress, and there's a, a whole page devoted to his work looking into these hollers, these fascinating hollers. We heard at the beginning of our show his rendition of Ain't Nobody's Business, which is a song whose provenance is questionable and we're going to get into in this interview as we get further along. Yeah, and I guess we'll have a link to uh, his work at the Library of Congress. Yeah, it's a 28-minute video that he did. It's absolutely beautiful and worth a watch. Now, if you didn't do any investigation, you would think the 17-year-old white guy wrote that song. But if you start listening to records and you dig and you start, you go, ain't nobody's business. Well, that came, the earliest reported, you know, examples of that is from the Mississippi Delta on, on, on some of those records. And, and, uh, but, but here's where, it, here's where it gets tricky. You know, the lyrics are kind of different. They're sort of the same, but they're kind of different. So then who wrote that song? You know, and this all happened. I'm talking about something that was recorded in in the in early 1940s. So, what is the song? Who originally wrote it? Is he, I challenge anybody who might be listening to this broadcast go try to find out who wrote a song when you know when recordings or or 
nobody was nobody was really writing this stuff down or trying to archive this stuff or save it for history. Mm-hmm. If, it, I, if I hear you right, it's like the song has a life of its own and an, and an identity of its own that that, that is altered or, or shaped by the different performers. So that so that in terms of the the integrity of the performance, it, 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 it's what the people bring to it and the sincerity or the lack of sincerity that they bring to the performance. Oh, sure. But, you know, you're dealing with, in, in the case of uh, the Library of Congress tapes, there's a, a wonderful family called the Chesser family that actually was nice enough to record for an archivist who came down from the north, uh, from the Pennsylvania area, and he was fascinated with the lifestyle and the flora and fauna of the Okefenokee Swamp in southeast Georgia. And the Chesser family... Uh, was willing to record, have themselves recorded for the Library of Congress, and it lives on now. So, um, you know, it's it's you just don't know where some of these songs originated, but this there was a sincerity there, and there was a sincerity in the people who recorded it, and and as an example, as a justification for why it's sincere, you need no. You need look no further than to say, this was survival. Some of this music was not just emotional survival like it is. Music is kind of our emotional survival nowadays. But back in the old days when somebody did a holler, something like that, that was so that their relatives a mile or two away could hear them coming through the woods and they might, they might need help or they may be okay and their well relatives could hear the emotion in their music in their in their sound it wasn't considered music it was just considered practical uh, communication so they were surviving so you talked about sincerity hobart what more of a sincerity is is there what more of a better example for sincerity is survival this was not entertainment for these people a lot of this stuff was just purely survival. I've hunted, I've shot a deer, or I've got a big bear. I can barely manage him. I need some help. Or how about this? A bear is after me, you know, <laughs> and I need some help. So I don't, I, you reminded me of one more thing, and I, I want to go back to that Led Zeppelin thing just for a second. You know, let's not forget, We, I, I know it's popular to bash them for... Everybody says they stole this or that. But they have also taken a lot of their wealth and, and helped out organizations in Mississippi and so on, like the Clarksdale Museum, the Blues Museum down in there. They're, okay. very, they're very strong supporters of that, along with Billy Gibbons and ZZ Top and all of those guys. So, you know, again, so we, we, we don't know the, the ways in which they might be able to help with their with their with their riches. Yeah, you just gotta be careful with these things. On one hand, we we're all good intentioned people. We we want to say, all right, the truth is it's public domain. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Page should have done that, should have should have should have stated that. But on the other hand, if he puts public domain down, then nobody makes any publishing money. Right. And maybe the museum in Clarksdale would not have been helped as much if Jimmy Page hadn't taken credit for it. So, you know, I'm, I really believe I'm, I'm trying to come from a good place of helping the source here. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, you know, we, we try to do the right thing sometimes in the modern world of just 
spread money around, it's, it's not the best thing to do. That's pretty remarkable talking about uh, sort of the history and the origins and the influences that uh, that uh, Walter had. But uh, let's listen to uh, another part of the interview where we actually talk about it in practice. Walter, for many years, has performed with black artists, uh, black traditional artists such as uh, Richie Havens, uh, the great folk singer you may know from the Woodstock uh, recordings in the film. And also, many years, he's been uh, traveling and recording with uh, Guy Day who's a uh, singer-songwriter and uh, traditional blues singer, uh, the son of the uh, great actor Ozzie Davis and, and Ruby Dee, uh, who is also an amazing actress. And he's uh, sort of worked on keeping the tradition around. So can I, can I, I just want to interject here for a brief moment. Ruby Dee, Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee had an effect on me as a young person. Um, there was something about their nobility, and for some reason I'm getting a catch in my throat talking about it. I recognized in them an effort to be seen as more than just black actors or black performers or whatever. There was a almost a reverence that I found in my own, whenever I would see them, like at award ceremonies or in film or on screen, there was something about that couple that really affected me, even as a young person. Just, just, it's just an aside. So when I heard that Guy Davis was their son, I had a real emotional reaction to that. Yeah. And I know uh, uh, that uh, uh, people who are the, Children of famous people often wind up uh, having to talk about their parents, and people ignore their own contributions. But uh, Guy Davis is a, a really, really a, a, a wonderful figure in, in American music, and and he uh, uh, would be wonderful if he were or weren't related to. Uh, uh, yeah, of course. And it but, was... but, but but we just really wanted to make sure that people who are listening to this and may not be familiar with Ozzy Davis and Ruby Dee, that they know that they should uh, look up their work and, and, and really find out about uh, these amazing performers. Of course. And we're going to play, I believe, a selection from the show that uh, Guy Davis did at the Focal Point. You weren't there. I was. And I went there because Walter Park said, you need to come out and see this guy. And he, Guy Davis brought him on stage for a couple of numbers. And I think we're going to play one of those numbers right now. All right. But anyway, so Guy Davis and I met uh, through Richie Havens, and we decided to work together upon having this conversation in Manhattan, wherein we learned of our common connection to the Okefenokee Swamp. And I said, Guy, we ought to put together a short tour and play down south. And one of the places that we played, uh, just very briefly, I, th I think was, was here, but 
we did a proper tour through Atlanta and Folkestone, Georgia, where the swamp is, and Asheville, North Carolina, and places like that. Well, um, this is this is fascinating to me in that uh, uh, Tog and I have been going through this this process. We we have a, a relationship. We we work together. Uh, we're friends, but then we recognize that there there's, there's been some unspoken uh, dimension of, of whether or not we've uh, occasionally thought about uh, each other as members of of different races, if that even matters, or when, or how, and in what way it might matter in terms of how we approach our relationship. Uh, did you and Guy ever talk about it and and, and figure out uh, uh, if uh, you're, there's culture that you're bringing in, or or or, 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 or was it not even related or important? Um, it's always important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I have a um, a song, for instance, called Who Am I to Play the Blues? Mm. And um, so it's a song that kind of asks the question, the obvious question of the title, but also considers, am I, am I appropriating to play a blues song that comes from African-American history? It is, is Because quite honestly, I feel... I've gone into this research, if you will, feeling like I was trespassing a little bit, you know? And so I've had these conversations with Guy. Guy, Guy's reaction and the reaction, I'll be very honest about this. The, this is probably, I, I don't think this is something that is, um, I'll just tell you my experience. Guy's reaction is, Basically, Walt, you're good. You know, you, you're honoring the form. You're 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 trying to you're trying to be reverent um, to the people who wrote it, and you're trying to be reverent to the music itself. You're you're studying it. You're good, and I I I, I want to be. I have approached. I've really tried to do my homework, guys. You know, I mean. And it's not just blues music. I'm also studying spirituals, which came, which were, I guess it could be said that that was the precursor of the blues. Field spirituals, field hollers, and that kind of thing. Every so often, every couple of years, I, I load my van up with recording equipment and guitars, and I prearrange these trips to some of the AME churches mostly down in Alabama and Mississippi. And they, they know I'm coming and, and I, will, I will have found out about some of the folks who might be open to me coming. And, you know, my intention is to just study, to just take what I can, learn what I can to the extent that I can as a white man and go down there and not not just sort of, I, I, I don't feel at all in my heart that what I'm doing is appropriating. I'm going down there to learn. I'm going down there to talk and to absorb to the extent that I can this music. But I, I will say this. What I have found uniformly, I can, I can tell it with this story. I remember one, one little 
place that I went to in a place called Redwood, Mississippi, between Yazoo City and um, Vicksburg, middle of nowhere. I, I had I'd been to this church on a trip prior. On my second trip that I came back to record, I was told to meet some people who didn't know me. They just knew I was coming. And... And here was the body language when I when I came in. The body arms language, crossed. yeah, <laughs> arms crossed. It's like, you know, the thought bubble would be like, "Who is this guy?" You know, and me and the guy, my my recording engineer, were the only white guys around, and and so it was not a very open body language like this. Now I want, and so my intention was to. Um, Record some of the hymns and spirituals that maybe were either in the in the African songbook, sung in the church, or maybe songs that I had been studying, and I just wanted to get a little bit of um, help and research on them. I wanted to hear locals play them, and I wanted to try to do my own versions. So the body language was start like this. Four hours later, most of these folks were sitting in the pews watching me record, and they would have their hymnals open. And they were following the lyrics, and they were trying to help me get my lyrics right and help me get everything in time. And by the time we would wrap and pack our lights and our cameras up, people were saying, this is some of the most beautiful versions of these songs I've ever heard. Wow, so it sounds like rather than cultural appropriation, it's cultural reclamation. I, I will just say, um, Robert, that, and I, this is the point I was trying to make with, with Guy, is that I'm finding as I travel and I expose to strangers, really, that I have issues of trespassing and I want to be respectful. I would say 99%. I don't even know if I've ever had anybody who didn't say essentially this. They would, they would say, you know, have you ever suffered, Walter? Have you ever suffered? And I would tell them, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I have, and I, I don't want to go into this for the for the interview, but I mean, it's like, you know, during my childhood, you know, things were occasionally not not so great, but I mean, um, you know, I think, I just, I, I don't want to, uh, basically. What always gets said is that, A, you appreciate it. A, B, you're performing this music at all. A lot of the young people in, in the African-American community who you, in a certain way, by logic, you would think would be the most interested in preserving this music, a lot of the young people don't even know that it exists. Or if they know that it exists, they might not even care to perpetuate it. And along comes a guy like me, looking like I stepped out of the Civil War or something, and I'm interested in, in historic black music. So they're happy about it. Mm -hmm. They're happy that, and so I've had men say to me, you know, you've suffered in your life. I know that you have, and I, you know, again, I'm not going to go into it. Because if you go into these things and everybody starts measuring, they tell you, oh, you haven't suffered enough, or you, you, you know, it's like, I, I can't stand that stuff, because... One person's, it's just, it's silliness. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. it's silliness. And, um, and it, it, it gets you nowhere. 
But at the end of the day, I'm, what, what I'm finding is that I'm way more concerned about this issue than I'm finding a lot of black folks are. Mm-hmm. Guys like Guy Davis are like, hey, man, you're good. You honor it. You care about it. You're trying to do it right. You're good. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have people saying, you know, stay in your lane. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't encounter that. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of, um, I'm, I'm, of course, grateful about that. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm just, if somebody feels that I need to stay in my lane, I wish they'd speak up. Did, did uh, Richie ever encounter it the other way around? Did, did Richie anyone say to him, you know, or oh, why are you a folk singer and you know stay in your lane? I, no, I, you know, I. But I did in my time with Richie. I, I would, I would, I, because Richie was older than me. I mean, I think Richie would probably have been about, he passed away 10 years ago at 73, so he would be around 83 or 84 now. He was of a different generation for me, you know? He could have been my father, age-wise. So, he was of that generation, and maybe, maybe young black folks would say, hey man, what are you talking about? Times haven't changed. But Richie was... A lot of times we we travel the south and we, you know, Richie need to take a rest stop or something, and he'd he'd ask me to go in with him, you know, because he didn't want to go into some strange general store or something to ask him to use their facilities. He he felt a little bit safer having some backup. Mm-hmm. And when I figured out that's what he was doing, he he never would tell me in that in that sense actually. But I thought, wow. What a what a horrible thing to not even feel like you can go into a convenience store, you know, and um, and uh, so I would see him occasionally get mistreated, and even in airports, like TSA people and so on, would be really tough on him. He, he you know, by a certain measure, you would say, "Well, who's this weirdo with the long beard and the rings and the necklaces and the." And all of this stuff, and you know, people would treat him like he was some sort of potential terrorist or something, just because he was ornate and had a sense of style. And that used to just piss me off. And I would go up to some of these TSA guys and goes, "Do you know? Do you have any idea who you're talking to with that tone? This is one of the most well-loved men in the whole world. It's like talking to Gandhi like that." Said, so "This is." I don't appreciate it, and he's not going to tell you that he doesn't appreciate it. But this is this is just not it's just not fair, you know. And you know, of course, I would risk not getting my flight. (laughs) 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 But it it would piss me off sometimes, and uh, because I idolized him, and I I was very grateful for Richie, and a lot of people loved him. And uh, but to. To think that he had to endure that stuff, even as famous as he was and as well known as he was, there's always some somebody who's who doesn't know who you are. Yeah. And by the way, I've never told that story. Oh. So, so thank you. Oh, wow. anyway. no, thank you for sharing thank it you. with us. Yeah. Yeah. All right.
All right. Well, that's it, Hobart. That was a pretty fascinating interview, I have to say. There's so many aspects of what this show is about involved with Walter Park's experience and life's work. Um, it's been a, it was it was a great time talking to him. It was, and we want to thank uh, the folks at the Focal Point for letting us uh, use their stage, and of course, uh, Paul Hyrett, who is uh, uh, the wonderful engineer who uh, recorded this, and Walter Parks. Uh, you can always check him out. Uh, he's got uh, lots of good stuff on uh, YouTube, and, and uh, go to his website as well. Uh, this has been Rambling Through the Brown, with hey, me, hey. Hobart Taylor. And Clark Taylor, and look, I just wanted to do a shout out to The Focal Point, one of the most amazing music venues in the world that gives us the opportunity to interview him, uh, Big River Media, and uh, and Mansard Productions, who was, uh, which is Paul Hyrant and, uh, and those great folks. Thank you. All right, everybody. Uh, stay tuned for more rambling through the brambles.